So there's a whole uh, system of sort of perverted incentives that, that cause, you know, imaginary threats to become supposedly real threats. And, uh, right. you know, lots of people benefit. The more we can educate the average uh, citizen of Canada, United States of the world, for that matter, uh, about the facts of climate and other science, for that matter, uh, the better off we will be. It will make them less susceptible to hucksters uh, who prey on their ignorance but uh, the way uh, much of science is going now, it's it's like, you know, uh, like savage witch doctors, you know, this is what the witch doctor tells you, you know, all the witch doctors agree. And so that's what the truth is. But that, of course, that's not science at all. A clear path forward requires looking back and learning. Good public policy requires human connection. It's a consideration of the facts, applying common sense and innovation. It's urban, it's rural, it's real life. We all have something to contribute. We all have a responsibility to get informed because there's a little piece of Canada in all of us, isn't there? Let's learn on this path together. This is Leaders on the Frontier. Well, the facts are that there is a vigorous scientific debate going on about climate change, despite what so many politicians or what you might hear in the media. Frankly, the, the public is unaware of this intense debate, and it's a debate that is going on among scientists. Well, I'm delighted to welcome our guest, Dr. William Happer, a preeminent physicist and scientist known around the world that can give us a little bit more sense of what's happening in this scientific debate that you may never hear about. So Dr. Happer is Professor Emeritus at Princeton University, He's a specialist in modern optics, optical, and radio frequency. Dr. Happer has served in numerous U.S. administrations at a senior leadership level, including as director of energy research under the Bush administration on fusion, environmental, and climate science, the Human Genome Project, among others. And he also served for one year as a deputy assistant to the president and senior director of emerging technologies in the National Security Council in 2018. A warm welcome, Dr. Happer. Thank you, David. Well, you know, it's incredible to uh, talk with you, Dr. Happer. Um, I really am uh, honored that uh, you could join us at this discussion. And I do want to remind our audience to please pose their questions in the chat. You're welcome to do that. But I would like to set the stage because we've got a lot to cover in today's far-reaching discussion. But I want to talk to you first about yourself and science. Um, so Dr. Happer, you're a scientist. Can you help us understand what kind of scientist you are? Well, David, I was trained as a nuclear physicist. And so I know sort of a lot about quantum mechanics and the things that go <laughs> with nuclear physics. Uh, I've done a lot of work with uh, lasers and atomic physics and a fair amount of uh, Atmospheric physics, too, I'm probably best known for having invented the sodium guide star, which is uh, used by many uh, astronomical observatories today on ground-based observatories to measure atmospheric properties and remove their effects on how well the telescope is able to see stars and galaxies. And so I've had a fairly broad career and uh, I know a lot about physics and chemistry and actually quite a lot about climate, I, I would guess. I know 
as much as most climate scientists do, maybe Very more. Good. <laughs> okay, so I, I want to ask you what some may think is a funny question, and that is, is there really such a thing as climate science? Well, uh, <laughs> it brings to mind my friend, uh, <laughs> you know, the um, John Nash, who was the subject mm -hmm. of the movie, A Beautiful Mind. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, he had a schizophrenia. And so he was really out of action for many years, for decades. And, but he gradually got better as he grew older. And, and finally, the Nobel Prize Committee uh, uh, awarded him the Nobel Prize in economics or something, you know, for his invention of uh, game theory which is very important in economics. And they were a little nervous. I remember they sent over a team from Sweden to ask his friends, I was one of them, whether uh, he would embarrass them if they awarded the prize because reporters would come and talk to him and uh, he might say something that would be just more than they could take. And we all reassured them that, yeah, he, you know, he's eccentric, but he won't, uh, he won't embarrass you terribly. So sure enough, when the prize was announced, uh, there was a flurry of activity. Reporters showed up at Princeton and uh, a young woman reporter shoved a microphone in front of his <laughs> in front of his face and said, well, you know, Dr. <laughs> Nash, what did you think when you heard that you had gotten the Nobel Prize? And so there was a long silence while you could, you could see the uh, wheels turning. And he said, well, I actually thought it was more money. Then <laughs> uh, the, the reporter didn't expect this, and she had to think of something else to say. So she said, well, Dr. Nash, what do you think of um, uh, social sciences and other sciences outside of mathematics and physics and chemistry, you know, the traditional ones, uh, gender science, for example, and uh, Again, there was this long silence. You could see the wheels turning. And he says, well, if the name has science in it, it's not science, right? Okay. <laughs> so, anyway, right. so climate, are, are you saying that climate science is a bit like gender studies? Is this what you're saying, uh, Dr. Happer? Wow. Okay. Well, that might be a revelation for some people. I know it is for me a little bit. Yeah, yeah. But um, it, 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 I guess the... The humbling thing about this is if we're looking at the prediction of climate, um, and this is probably the understatement of the year, it is terribly complex, is it not? It's very complex, that's right, yeah. yeah there, there's a reason for that, you know, it's uh, the interaction of the atmosphere and the ocean, both of them are fluids, and uh, fluids are notoriously difficult to uh, predict and to work with, and uh, so it's no wonder that it's a difficult field. Uh, doesn't mean mm -hmm. you should give up, but you should right. claim more than you can do with it. Yeah. Uh, so if, if you were to rapidly summarize just some of the key variables, I mean, we have obvious things like the sun too. What else do we have? Water vapor. Do clouds matter, Dr. Happer? Well, the Earth's climate is, is dominated by the sun. You know, we get all of the energy that keeps us warm from the sun. To, there's maybe a part per thousand that comes from geothermal heat coming up from the uh, interior of the earth, but that's trivial. Mm -hmm. So we're completely dependent on the sun. 
I don't know if you've ever been in a solar eclipse, but a total eclipse, one of the first things you notice is that it really gets cold, you know, if it's clear day. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You're, you're kind of shivering by the time that the uh, eclipse is over. And so for just those brief few minutes that the sun is eclipsed, the earth cools very rapidly, you know, in blue skies, especially. So the sun provides heat and, um, you, you know, you've got to get rid of that heat or the earth would uh, overheat. And so we get rid of the heat by radiating heat back into empty space. Space is nice and cold. And so you can radiate all the infrared you like and uh, uh, come to an equilibrium temperature. So earth has been doing that from the beginning, you know, it's mm -hmm. heated by the sun and it cools off by radiating to space. Now that radiation to space comes from partly from the surface and partly from clouds radiating to space and partly from greenhouse gases, especially in clear skies when there are no clouds around. And so these three things, uh, the surface, the clouds and, and uh, gases are re-radiating solar heat back into space. And greenhouse gases uh, make it a little bit harder to re-radiate because they radiate typically at higher altitudes where it's cooler. And uh, we should be grateful for that because, you know, if you look at what the Earth's temperature would be like, it would be like Winnipeg winter you know, all year round <laughs> without mm -hmm. water vapor and, and uh, carbon dioxide. So thank, thank goodness for greenhouse gases. Exactly. Uh, so when we think about climate change, often carbon dioxide yeah. is fingered as this uh, extraordinary gas that is kind of at the cause of, of virtually all our concerns that climate change becomes an existentialist threat. Is that, yeah. is that a fair well, comment? Of course, that, that's complete nonsense. You know, carbon dioxide is, uh, is a greenhouse gas and it causes some warming, but water vapor is much more important. And if you include clouds plus water vapor, water in both forms uh, completely dominates uh, the greenhouse effect of the earth. Carbon dioxide is uh, uh, a, sec a runner up. So okay. without clouds, carbon dioxide might be about a third of the greenhouse effect, two thirds of okay. the water vapor. And if you add clouds, then uh, water just completely overwhelms CO2. Okay, so just to just to clarify that again, so I can hear senior fellow from Frontier, uh, Dr. Patrick Moore, one of the co-founders of Greenpeace, saying, right. um, "Yes, carbon dioxide is actually not a pollutant; it's actually vital for life around the Earth." Um, so you'd agree with that that thesis that carbon dioxide is actually important? Yes, absolutely. Uh, Patrick Moore couldn't be more correct about that, and uh, the Earth. Uh, really lives on carbon dioxide, you know, we, mm -hmm. you and I are sitting here breathing out carbon dioxide because that we need the carbon to live, you know, in the form of, you know, food, you know, proteins and uh, carbohydrates, fats, uh, but they're all made of carbon and they, uh, mm -hmm. not very long ago, they were all carbon dioxide in the air that was captured by, you know, cornfields or, you know, pastures wow. and, uh, you know, eventually passed on to us. Okay, yeah, but but this this whole thesis about carbon dioxide. Then, are you concerned about the environment? Like, are you uh, somehow being reckless in your statements about carbon dioxide? Like, how are, how are we 
then in this existential crisis, we hear this all the time. In Canada, we even have what's it called? Um, it used to be called uh, Environment Canada, uh -huh. has been renamed as uh, Climate Change Canada uh -huh. to emphasize that we've got to be focused on this whole existential threat. What is going on here? Why is the public debate saying that we are headed over a cliff? When in fact, from a scientific point of view, you're saying, no, that's not true. And that there's actually a scientific debate then with among scientists about what's happening with our climate, because climate is always changing, is it not? Yes, of course. Well, you know, look, for the last, you know, 40, 50 years, climate has warmed a little bit. Uh, it's been about a tenth of a degree per decade, which is much, much less than the predictions of, uh, you know, the climate establishment. In fact, you know, I wrote one of the first uh, papers on this back in the 80s, and I got it wrong too. You know, I predicted two or three times more warming than we've actually observed. You know, I've, I've learned more since then, so I, I think I understand what was wrong. Wow. But uh, So you, you actually make mistakes as everybody does. Everybody makes mistakes, of course. Uh, okay. Wow. <laughs> so, so we have a lot of politicians, a lot of the media, we have a lot of uh, even celebrities, actors, um, out there talking about the existential nature of climate change. So is it just because it's popular to talk in that language? Is it used as a rationale to make a lot of policy changes? What's going on here? Why, why, what's, what's your thesis on this? Well, it's, it's hard to know. I, I think there are many reasons. You know, there are sincere people who uh, have been misled. You know, they're mm. not terribly uh, strong scientifically, they're not numerate, and so it's very hard for them to come to their own conclusion. And so all they hear since childhood is there's this climate emergency. And, uh, you know, we, we have short lives, so we can't remember what our grandfathers saw or our great grandfathers, mm -hmm. who saw more or less the same climate as we have, although it was a little bit a little bit cooler because we were coming out of the little ice age in the 1800s. But uh, so there, there are sincere people who've just been misled. And then mm -hmm. there have been uh, opportunists who've made a lot of money, you know, from pushing uh, sustainable energy. And, uh, you know, they get uh, chairs at universities and, uh, you know, prizes, uh, Nobel Prizes even. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. for saving humanities, you know, uh, it's all nonsense. They're not saving yeah. anybody. Uh, and then there are, uh, there, there are just so many motives. They're, they're, none of them are quite the same. Oh, yes. Right. And um, what's, what's interesting, I think, in the last few months, we've learned a lot about what we've long time suspected is that there's quite a network of government agencies that have really worked hard to push a certain narrative regarding climate for whatever reason right. and even censor it and i think that most recently within the twitter files and i right. encourage people to look at them with an open mind yeah. it's 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 almost disturbing how when we need in fact open debate and discussion regarding all kinds of issues it's clear that there's a, a very a significant network uh, pushing 
a only one-sided narrative. Does that did that surprise you to learn of that? I mean, you've been intimately involved at the highest level of the U.S. Yeah. government. Did that surprise you? No, I mean, you know, 1991 when I was director of energy research. That's 20 years, what 30 years now, a little more than 30 years ago. You know that we were still pushing climate alarmism. I was a little bit guilty myself because if I pushed it, my budget would be bigger the next year. And so I was uh, infected with the same uh, problem. You, you know, as it says in the scriptures, you know, where where's your, where your treasure is, there will your, your heart be also. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Interesting. That's true of, of uh, scientific funding, you know. So, you know, the best way to get funding is to invent a threat, and then uh, Congress will give you money to address the threat. And... Uh, then you have to hire people to help you address the threat. And then since you have more people working for you in Washington, that means your salary goes up. So there's a whole uh, uh, system of sort of perverted incentives that, that cause, you know, imaginary threats to become supposedly real threats. And, uh, right. you know, lots of people benefit and uh, mm-hmm. the average person is screwed. <laughs> Okay, wow. So given this kind of strange dichotomy, we've got this kind of public debate going on, uh, Dr. Happer, uh, we've learned about that and how, in your opinion, that's really not based on the science. But meanwhile, there's um, real scientists such as yourself that are debating about the climate. So can we talk a little bit more about that and what the nature of that debate is about? Well, I think the heart of the debate is... uh how much feedback uh, is there from uh, direct effects of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases, methane or nitrous oxide, how much feedback is there that would amplify the direct effects or or attenuate it? So right from the beginning, it was clear that the direct effects of carbon dioxide uh, weren't big enough to worry anyone. You know, one of the very first uh, environmental uh, <laughs> uh, alarmist was Steve Schneider. I, I always admired him because he was very straightforward and quite honest in what he said. But he started out as a, uh, a global cooling uh, alarmist. Uh, this was back around 1970, 71. And indeed, the climate was getting colder then. I remember that period. Uh, I lived mm-hmm. in New York and I looked out over the Hudson River and I could see ice flows coming down the river, they got worse and worse every winter. There was more and more of it. Uh, I remember 1976, I re- you could practically walk to New Jersey across the ice flows. Uh, and so during that time, uh, lots of people were getting publicity, uh, predicting, you know, the end of the world from mm-hmm. global cooling, including Steve Schneider. Mm-hmm. Actually, Dr. Hopper, I remember as a kid watching a documentary, I think it was by uh, Leonard Nimoy talking about uh, the uh, existential threat of, of uh, global cooling, right. the, ice, the, the new yeah, ice age, yeah. right? Well, a lot of mm-hmm. people believe that. I think Steve Schneider was probably sincere. Mm-hmm. And uh, he did calculate the effects of CO2, hoping that CO2 might help. And uh, so he didn't put any positive feedbacks in. He just took the direct calculation, which mm-hmm. is probably the right answer. And he pointed out that it, it wasn't enough to matter. You know, it's... Uh, so around a degree, if you double CO2, a degree, a degree centigrade, you know, the degrees they use in Canada, we still use Fahrenheit. In the United okay. States. 
experience. So I do have a question there. So when you refer to feedback, and right. I should just clarify this for a sec. So the, the main um, contention is that carbon dioxide will lead to a degree or two of, or an increase in warming of the earth yeah, about one over the next some 80 years, right? Two, about one, about one. About one, okay, sorry, yeah. I stand corrected. About one degree, wow. Yeah. So then, but the, 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 when you say frequency, do you mean like kind of a domino effect? Because of that one degree, all things, all kinds of other things will happen? Or, yes, or yes what, that, that, that's feedback. Now, one thing most people don't recognize is that nature is full of feedbacks and most natural feedbacks are, are negative, not positive. You know, they, uh, they, they try to prevent change, not accelerate change. It's called Le Chatelier's principle. It's uh, well known for a century or more. And uh, somehow climate is supposed to be different that the feedbacks in climate, not only are they not negative, but they're very strongly positive. <laughs> which in itself is very unusual. You know, I can't think of many systems like that. And uh, there, there's no evidence, uh, observational evidence that it's even true. But nevertheless, they've been able to get away with the claims of these enormous positive feedbacks. So the innocuous warming that Steve Schneider first calculated, which was probably correct, uh, has been turned into this threatening warming that's three times, five times, you know, the, the sky's the limit, you know, <laughs> every year it seems to get worse. And yet nature okay. continues to point out that the right answer is probably that the feedback is as close to zero. It is. Uh, okay. So, so there really isn't a existential threat. So the question then is what do we do about it? Because climate, um, the threat of, of the climate changing and creating, creating an existential threat is being used as a pretext to change a lot of public policy. The, the list, it's like a laundry list of things that they're using on the pretext that this is all a threat to people's lives. Yeah, I mean, it, it's being used by many people as uh, a power grab, you know. It, uh, it's, uh, many people have pointed out it's quite similar to uh, a secular religion and, uh, you know, religions uh, at their best are, are wonderful things, you know, they preach morality and uh, make human existence better, but they're often corrupted and uh, they're simply used as control for people. And uh, <laughs> so you promise, you know, brimstone and <laughs> fire, and uh, unless you donate so, such and such to my church and, and uh, so uh, it, it's being used in that uh, uh, bad sense uh, that, mm -hmm. you know, bad religions have used in the past. And So in this context, though, um, when you look at actions in terms of, you know, lay people like myself trying to understand the complexities of climate science, we want to link or base public policy on good science. So what can we do in terms of action and where is... Where is your hope in all of this? Well, I think the uh, more we can educate the average uh, citizen of Canada, United States of the world, for that matter, uh, about the facts of climate and other science, for that matter, uh, the better off we will be. It will make them less susceptible to hucksters uh, who, uh, who prey on their ignorance. So education would help. 
and that's a problem because uh, the other side uh, understands that and, and they've turned much of uh, elementary education into uh, more propaganda than real education, you know, so, uh, mm-hmm. yeah. so, you know, students learn that, you know, all the adults agree that this is the right answer. And so, well, that's the right answer. Yeah. So when we should they, be teaching them science, ironically. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so the poor students, they don't really learn what science is, you know, that as I, as we began this, you know, that science is a truth that's outside of humanity. It's the way the world is. And, uh, it's complicated, you know. Uh, there's a famous uh, quotation by uh, Einstein uh, when someone asked him about suppose uh, suppose your theory of general relativity is wrong. Uh, you know they're going to test it at uh, you know the next eclipse. This was 1919 or something. I think it was the Eddington expedition, but Einstein. Uh, uh, says um, originally in German, but I'll try and translate it into English. Uh, well, the Lord God is subtle, but he's not malicious. And mm-hmm. <laughs> so what he was trying to say is that, you know, the the real realities of science, of the way the world works, gravity, everything, climate, COVID, is subtle. It's really hard to understand it. Uh, but if you keep working at it, uh, honestly, you'll eventually understand it. You know, you won't be tricked by uh, nature or by God, whoever made the world the way it is. And um, so I, I think that getting the idea across that, that there really is this uh, reality out there that if you're honest about it, you can figure out what it is and it'll be good for humanity. It, it, you. If you really know how the world works, you can work with it and make it work for you. But uh, the way uh, much of science is going now, it's it's like, you know, uh, like savage witch doctors, you know, this is what the witch doctor tells you, you know, all the witch doctors agree. And so that's what the truth is. But that, wow. of course, that's not science at all. Well, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Happer, for this very interesting discussion and for challenging all of us to not only be educated more about climate uh, science, but also about this real debate and perhaps a solution in terms of how we can come forward as we care both about science and public policy. So thank you so much, Dr. Happer, for all your leadership and work in the area of science. Uh, We're so grateful that you could spend this time with us. Thank you, David. Thank you for watching Leaders on the Frontier. We're a nonpartisan think tank. We explore ideas, policy, and practical solutions that can make a difference in the lives of Canadians. We do not accept any government funding. We work for you. Thank you for supporting Frontier. Visit fcpp.org to give. While you're there, be sure to check out our latest articles and research. Without open discussion and debate, you're not thinking, nor are you free comment below. We'd love for you to join the conversation.